0: Howdy, before we begin today, we'd like to say thanks for listening to the show. And if you'd like to support Come and Take It, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast. You can also find a link at the top of our page at brainstable.com. Enjoy the show. Like all things in Texas history, everything is a Star Wars metaphor. (laughs) Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends, born and raised in the Lone Star State, share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkoski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In the 1810s and 20s, a motley mix of adventurers, revolutionaries, and freebooters, known as the filibusters, staged a series of incursions and invasions into the Spanish territory of Texas. They came to liberate Mexico, to carve out an independent Texas or just for personal fortune and glory. But whatever their cause, they made a lasting mark on the history of Texas. But first,
1: what's your favorite Texas Bay? Well, the easy answer is I'm kind of partial to Galveston Bay because I grew up down there. But more specifically, there's a small bay called Dollar Bay down there near Texas City, which is where we would always put in our boat to go fishing in Moses Lake uh, out by the floodgates. So I'm going to say Dollar Bay. Also, Dollar Bay is where we were headed out in the last trip of the boat I grew up with. And we went to go fishing. I was going to fish with my dad. And he went and he gunned the throttle on the outboard and the transom broke. So <laughs> we didn't go fishing that day. And we, no. we limped back to the ramp and got out of there before we sank.
2: Well, uh, although I, you really can't mistake it for the mouth of the Mississippi River, much like Salle, I love Matagorda Bay for its place in Texas history. And I'm just going to say, because of my childhood experience, Corpus Christi Bay, you may be shallow and brown, but I love Mm. you anyway. That should be a song. (laughs) Last week, we talked about Philip Nolan, a young Irishman who led a group of frontiersmen into Texas seeking trade and wild horses. But he ran afoul of Spanish officials who thought he was a spy. Why did they think he was a spy? Because he was drawing maps. Because he was drawing maps and where he wasn't supposed to be. The irony is that while Nolan had worked for the American government, his final fatal expedition into Texas was driven by the desire for personal gain, not any real effort to usurp Spanish territory. His death and the mistreatment of his men by the Spanish authorities served to inflame opinion against the Spanish Empire and laid the seeds for future endeavors to do just what the Spanish feared Nolan was doing. The political situation on the Spanish frontier, as well as in Europe in the first decades of the 19th century, helped those seeds sprout over time.
1: After Napoleon enticed Spain to return the vast Louisiana Territory to France, and then turned around and sold it to the United States, the eyes of many Americans turned to Texas. Spain was infuriated by Napoleon's move, though they were powerless to do anything to stop it. They did, however, attempt to reinforce their control of the empire's northern boundaries, especially Texas. There was nearly conflict with the U.S. along the Sabine River and in the end a neutral ground was set between the Arroyo Hondo, a small river in Louisiana, and the Sabine. The neutral zone was negotiated by the morally sketchy General James Wilkinson, now governor of Louisiana. Since he was secretly a spy for Spain, it's likely that he didn't see much profit in both of his employers fighting each other and the neutral ground served everyone's interests in the short term. Things remained quiet for a few more years.
0: In eighteen o eight, however, the Spanish monarchy was deposed by Napoleon, who put his brother on the throne. This caused massive instability throughout the empire and the mood was soon ripe for revolution. In 1810, Mexico exploded in revolt, led by Father Miguel Hidalgo. Hidalgo had very nearly succeeded in toppling the colonial ruling elite. In Texas, one of his supporters, Juan Batista de las Casas, managed to gain control of the province for 39 days. But Spanish loyalists rallied and defeated Las Casas, as well as Hidalgo, and they were executed along with several other leaders. Many of Hidalgo's followers escaped and scattered, still holding on to the dream of an independent Mexico. One of them was a blacksmith from the Rio Grande Valley town of Ravilla, named Bernardo
2: Gutiérrez de Lara. Gutiérrez had supported Hidalgo and Las Casas, and after their defeat, escaped to the U.S. to continue the fight. He went to Washington, D.C. in 1811, seeking support from the U.S. government. Many people in both countries believed that the Mexican War of Independence was a natural continuation of America's own successful revolution. As a result of that belief, they felt that the U.S. should step in to liberate Mexico and other parts of the Spanish Empire. The U.S. government under James Madison didn't share that perspective, but it didn't actively oppose Gutierrez's efforts or prevent Americans from joining him although this was technically illegal under U.S. law. Gutierrez made his way to Louisiana to recruit supporters for his return to Texas and Mexico, and there he met a young Army officer named Augustus McGee.
1: McGee was a Bostonian and an early graduate of West Point. He served under General Wilkinson in Baton Rouge and later under future President Zachary Taylor at Natchitoches. His primary duty was to police the settlers and outlaws in the neutral ground. He did so effectively, but was criticized for his harshness. By 1812, McGee was still a lieutenant and frustrated at being passed over for promotion. War with Great Britain loomed over the horizon, but he was stuck as far away from the anticipated Canadian war zone as possible. This well-trained and experienced young officer was just the kind of man that Gutierrez was looking for when they met. In June 1812, McGee resigned his commission, and with Gutierrez began recruiting men to invade Texas and
0: Mexico. They recruited 130 men in Natchitoches, an equal mix of American frontiersmen, ex-soldiers, exiled Mexican revolutionaries, and Indians. The recruits were promised $40 a month and a league of land in Texas, which is about 4,500 acres. Gutierrez was technically in command of this expedition, which they gave the lofty formal title of the Republican Army of the North, with a rank of general. McGee, now a colonel, commanded the troops. Samuel Davenport, a merchant from Natchitoches, who had trading interests with the Indians in East Texas, joined on as the financier and quartermaster. They entered Texas in August 1812 and soon captured Nacogdoches without much of a fight. Reinforcements began to stream in to join the victorious army, which swelled to 300 men. They captured the outpost at Santissima Trinidad on the Trinity River near present day Madisonville on September 13th.
2: Home of the Texas Burger. Yeah. And the Buckies. At Trinidad, McGee fell ill with an unknown ailment. Some sources indicate consumption, or tuberculosis, or malaria, although decades later, Texas President Mirabeau Lamar noted persistent rumors that McGee was poisoned by his own men. Although he was sick, McGee still led his men, and in November they proceeded south to the Presidio at La Bahia, in what is now Goliad. They captured the Presidio, again without a fight, but on November 13th, Spanish Governor Manuel de Sacedo laid siege to McGee's army with 800 men. Attacks on the fortress failed, however, and the siege went on for months, and months, and months. McGee was concerned that he was overmatched, and he began discussing surrender with Salcedo. This proved unpopular with his men, and the siege continued. On February 6, 1813, McGee fell ill once more, and he died. Again, Lamar repeated persistent rumors that McGee was despondent and took his own life, but no real proof of this exists.
1: Major Samuel Kemper took command of the troops. A few days after McGee's death, despite being outnumbered, Kemper struck at Salcedo. This forced the Spanish to lift their siege and retreat to San Antonio. Kemper and Gutierrez stayed in Goliad, and their army was reinforced from Nacogdoches, as well as from deserting Spanish troops and local Indians. In March, with 800 men, the filibusters defeated a large Loyalist army at Rocio, southeast of San Antonio near the Old Espada mission. The Spanish were so badly beaten that they surrendered unconditionally to the Republicans, giving up control of San Antonio and effectively of Texas.
0: Though Salcedo surrendered unconditionally, there was still the question of what to do with him and his officers. A big issue was the personal animosity that Gutierrez and Salcedo had for each other. Salcedo had been imprisoned and humiliated by Lacasas and Gutierrez, but Gutierrez claimed that Salcedo had murdered his relatives. Gutierrez suggested that to maintain the peace, Salcedo should be escorted to the U.S. border for safekeeping. On April 3rd, Salcedo, General Simone de Herrera, and 12 officers were escorted out of San Antonio. Near the site of the Battle of Rosillo, Salcedo and his men were tied to trees and executed, reportedly at Gutierrez's order. This action disgusted Kemper and many other Americans, and they abandoned the cause,
2: returning to the United States. Despite this barbaric display, Many Americans stayed, and the Republican Army continued to grow. On April 17th, the Army drafted a Declaration of Independence proclaiming Texas to be an independent state within the Mexican Republic. A constitution was drafted, and a ruling junta was put together, with Gutierrez as head of state. For a few months, there was a working government and a judiciary within Texas, all under the solid green flag of the Republic of the North. Major Reuben Ross, another American, took over command of the troops, and they prepared to take their invasion into Mexico itself.
1: In June, the Loyalists sent Colonel Ignacio Elizondo to attack San Antonio with an army of 900 men. Ross advised the council to retreat, but he was overruled and resigned from the expedition as a result. Captain Henry Perry took command and took his men out to surprise the Spanish army in a bloody pre-dawn assault at Alazon Creek, which is southwest of Bayar. Around 300 royalists were killed, and the Republicans captured huge quantities of supplies and horses, most of which were given as payment to their Indian allies. It seemed like the Army of the North could not be beat.
0: Alizan Creek was the swan song for the Republicans, however.
1: Cuban revolutionary
0: José Alvarez de Toledo arrived in San Antonio from the U.S. in early August. He'd been a backer of the expedition early on, and had the covert support of the American government to ask Gutierrez whose brutality against Salcedo had tainted his reputation. Perry and the Americans in the army supported Toledo, and on August 6, Gutierrez was forced out of power and sent back to Nacatish. This would permanently damage the unity of the army, as many of the Tejanos supported Gutierrez and opposed the aristocratic Toledo. What's worse, word came within a few days that another force of royalists,
2: under General José Joaquín de Arredondo, was on its way to San Antonio. Toledo wanted to fortify San Antonio, but Perry and the local officials convinced him to spare the town and its people. The Republican army, now numbering around 1,400 men, marched out against Arredondo on August 15, 1813. They met Arredondo at Medina, 20 miles south of San Antonio. Arredondo was a different commander than his predecessors. He arranged his army in a novel formation. His line infantry formed up in the front in a line, while his cavalry and artillery formed the other two sides of a triangle behind them, which obscured the back lines. When the Republicans attacked the first line of troops, these men gave way, drawing the Republicans behind them. Then the other two lines of troops moved in to envelop the now-trapped enemies. It was a classic double envelopment, and the Republican army was devastated. 1,300 of Toledo's men were killed on the battlefield, either while fighting or executed after surrendering. Only 55 of Arredondo's force were killed in the bloodiest battle ever fought on Texas soil. The bodies of the Republican troops were left to rot and weren't buried for nearly a decade.
1: Toledo, Perry, and around 100 other men escaped the slaughter and fled to the United States. Toledo attempted a return to Texas in 1814, but failed to get support. In 1816, he reconciled with the Spanish loyalists and even returned to Spain as an advisor to King Fernando VII. Perry also tried several returns to Texas, organizing an expedition in 1815 that made it as far as Anahuac on Galveston Bay and joined Louis Michael Ari's occupation of Galveston Island. Also among the survivors were Jose Antonio Navarro and a young officer named Josiah Taylor. Navarro would later be one of the signers of the Texas Declaration of Independence. Taylor returned to Texas legally in 1824 with his family, including his young son, Creed. Jim Bowie's older brother, Reason, also served in the Gutierrez-Magee expedition, although he probably left with Kemper before the Battle of Medina. On the other side of the battle was a young cavalry officer and aide to Arredondo, who would one day return to Texas, Antonio López de Santa Ana. After the
0: battle, Arredondo marched into San Antonio and quickly restored Spanish authority. The repercussions were harsh. Most of the remaining Americans were arrested, as were any locals who helped the Republicans. Over 300 people were executed, and many others were marched off to prisons. Elizondo took back Nacogdoches and exacted such vengeance that the town was largely depopulated. Hundreds of families who had supported the Republic fled to Louisiana and did not return for many years. In fact, some sources speculate that the territory's population was reduced as much as 10% from pre-1812 levels. Despite the end of the Gutierrez-McGee expedition in the Republic of the North, the situation in Texas would not stabilize. Within a few years, there would be more incursions into Texas by outsiders. The era of the filibuster
2: had just begun. So the, the Republic of the North, the Gutierrez-McGee Expedition, is always one of those stories that's fascinated me about Texas, because it really is a precursor to the Texas Revolution. But it's actually more of a, in the context and part of the Mexican Revolution and its independence movement. Like all things in Texas
0: history, everything is a star Wars metaphor. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting because it was like, you know, da, 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 Oh, Hey, look, there's Chewbacca. And Oh, Hey, there's that guy I'm going to see in a later movie. Yeah. Like there's a lot of players in this, in this story. It's like the prequel
2: movies,
1: except it was good. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of the players did, uh, a lot of the players did have a big part in this, this yeah. event.
1: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that the the filibusters were more instrumental in the Mexican revolution. Well, that. Texas Revolution, I don't think would have. We've talked about this before. The Texas Revolution wouldn't have played out the way it did without first having the Mexican Revolution mm-hmm. from the independence from Spain. I very much doubt that Texas would have gained the independence that it did directly from Spain. It just seemed like there was a lot of weight and inertia there with, mm. you know, a more global empire that they were trying to break away from versus Mexico, which was a little more. Well, there's this, this, yeah, there's, yes,
2: and, and the character of the, the Mexican independence movement had different factors in place because of the class system in Mexico and the yeah. aristocracy that existed. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, part of the, the battle for Mexican independence resulted in years and years and years of chaos. Yes. And out of that chaos, you know, yeah. Texas, the Texan Revolution was just another, mm-hmm. you know, another revolution in that series.
0: Well, it's interesting you, you put in that comparison because— the, to me, the heart of the Mexican Revolution is is that we are. They they say we are our own country. Mm-hmm. This is its own place now. You you founded us, but now we're our own. We need to rule ourselves. And all of these different groups came into Texas and were like, "Yes, we are sort of a part of Mexico, but we really need to be our own thing now." Mm. And and it it's not like. In your textbooks you read, in the simple version of the Texas history is is that people came to Texas, and there was a revolution, and Texas was its own country, and then it became part of the United States. What they don't say is, is there's this long string of people who kept trying to liberate Texas and kept being yes. a part of this. Politi- like This was not a sprint. This was a marathon. Mm-hmm.
2: And of all the filibusters, this is by far the most successful one because they went a good period of a good year being victorious.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we kind of, for those that are not familiar with the geography of Texas, we kind of glossed through some of these locations, you know, Natchitoches is in Western Louisiana and it's right across the river from Nacogdoches practically. So that's a short distance, but then they go from Nacogdoches to San Antonio, which is, if you look on a map from Nacogdoches to San Antonio
2: is a long distance. Well, to put it into context, Texas is around the same size as France. So it would be like going from the Belgian border, uh, well past Paris, uh, like, to the middle of France. Bonjour. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that a
1: small, relatively small band of men was able to get that far mm-hmm. into the Texas territory and take over the, um, kind of the seat of Texan power in San Antonio and hold it for as long as they did. Right. Um, is kind of amazing.
2: The other thing that's always made me interested in this and that's fascinated me is that we talk about San Jacinto and the Alamo and, and these battles of the Texas Revolution. The Battle of Medina was... It was fourteen hundred men on the Republican side against about 1,700 1, men on the on the Spanish side. It's the largest battle fought. It's it may not be the largest battle fought in Texas soil because some this of the battles is. of the Mexican War, the Mexican American War, were bigger. But the but the it is certainly the bloodiest. 1,300. yeah 1, thirteen hundred out of fourteen 1, hundred men. Yes,
0: yeah, that's, that's a that's a high casualty rate. It certainly should be not just in among texans but in terms of like world history like it should get more recognition than it probably it, it, does but yeah. i was going to say they they talk in the story about how the bodies are left to rot mm-hmm. in the fields and they're just left there uh there's a similar story told about san, san Jacinto, mm-hmm. that 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 that's you know they that it was it was left at, un, un yeah. undone and uh you know people just said man it, it just it, there was a smell Smelled like death. Yeah. Smell like Smelled death. And death. And it was just a is, it makes it kind of almost a cursed place. But this is this
2: is about uh about twenty miles it's actually within Metropolitan San Antonio. It's about twenty miles from downtown yeah. San Antonio. There's a lake
0: there now. There's a yeah. lake in Medina now.
2: But it's um the other thing is that, that the the army that fought the Republican army at that battle was bigger than Sam Houston's army ever was during the Texas Revolution. So it's like this was a movement that was that was very strong and it had a great deal of local support.
1: Yeah. And I'm kind of curious as to why they were so um, so decimated by that battle and, and whether it had something to do with it. You know, we talked about how their ranks swelled with supporters, but then there were also a lot of uh, soldiers that had deserted the mm-hmm. Spanish army. And so maybe their hearts weren't fully in yeah, the battle. Yeah, and that, yeah. th- I think that's a big difference between this, this expedition and the later Texas Revolution is they didn't really— Necessarily, seem to have the same heart right. and, well, uh, and, and the, desire.
2: Yeah, the Indians fighting were fighting for pay. Yeah, there was a mercenary element of that army. Um, the other fun thing about this is that we, they're often they're called the Gutierrez McGee expedition, but Gu- McGee died pretty early in the battle, or in the, in the in the in the in the expedition, and Gutierrez didn't finish it. the The irony <laughs> with Gutierrez is that him getting deposed saved his life. Right, yeah. Pretty much. Because if, if he, had, he had been there when the— Oh, they, they would. have If, if yeah. they caught him, they would have gotten him. But it
0: also—it served to to break up part of the the movement as well because exactly. of the support. So, it, you know, it, you start getting into this historical fiction sort of a mm-hmm. little bit of, you know, navel-gazing, figuring out, oh, what if this thing had happened or not happened? But, you know, uh, I wonder with the players that were there, had the Republic of the North— Still existed would Texas have the same trajectory as it has today? Who knows. Um, it's, such odd, yeah. it's such an odd. It's it such an odd. piece of oddity in, in Texas. Gutierrez history.
2: does. Gutierrez will make his appearance again a couple more times. So uh, he he doesn't disappear uh, into history. He he does have still a role to play in Texas and Mexico's history.
1: We talked before and we mentioned briefly at the end of this episode how the treatment. Of the Gutierrez-McGee expedition and their army by Arredondo and his command um, influenced a young Santa Ana and mm-hmm. how he would later deal with the fighters in the Texas Revolution of
2: any of any revolt against him and that yeah. that, that was a big part of Will Fowler's book about San Antonio is that this was this was Santa Ana's learning experience and he's brutal he's uh, yeah he's, he treats everyone with just brutality right and, and yeah and Arredondo was his model for for a lot of things Arredondo was a political person he was uh, he was a womanizer he was a prankster and he he loved being in the field uh, he was a crafty general and the, all of those things Santa Ana inherited from him and learned at his side but yeah how you treat those who rise up against you that's how you this is where he learned how to wage war And it, yeah, it was very brutal. It was, they scourged them with scorpions. But this would not be the last filibuster, would it? No, it it will not be the last filibuster. That wraps things up for today.
0: You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Two Shawma2Ns. And I'm Scotticus. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes. That helps us get noticed and reach new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants wants you anyway.